following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of James, chapter 1. Follow along in your outline. How about you? Remember those old days, and this is probably dating some of you, that... uh, there were conferences that guaranteed that if you went to this conference that your life would become incredible as a Christian. Or there were books that were written that if you read this book that you would stop being an average Christian and you would be an incredible Christian. And there were actually sermon series that if you read the sermon series back in these early days when Christianity was becoming much more commercial they would say, well, listen to this series and then all your parenting will be awesome. Your marriage will come together and it'll fix all your problems. Well, I got saved at 18 and I have to confess that I began to read some of those books and I began to go to some of those conferences and I began to listen to some of those tape series and found that they, uh, you know, would give you a little bit of an extra boost, but then you'd go right back to living for Christ in some way, some manner. And it became obvious to me in time that I realized that the Christian life was not an instant fix. Has anybody figured that out yet? That it's not a microwave. That it's not like if you do one thing, you've arrived You just do one thing, you start coming to church and you're here six weeks in a row. Man, my life is together now. Not really. It's a process. It's a process and there are ups and downs. There are joys and sorrows. There are triumphs and trials. Uh, There are great days and there are really difficult days and there are days where there's massive amount of fruit And then right after that, a whole bunch of failure. Anybody know that? Anybody understand that? Interesting enough, I began to live day by day just in the faithful pursuit of trying to have every element of my life be in obedience to the Word of God. That was just a real simple independence upon the Spirit of God, dependent obedience, I call it. And it was the only way that I found to have peace, to mature and to stabilize in my faith before the Lord. It it became regular, and and the ups and the downs didn't affect me as much, and I wasn't looking for a quick fix anymore. And then came the massive shock. And the shock was that realizing that living day by day, saturated with the Spirit of God, and seeking to obey the Word of God was not common. It wasn't normal. It wasn't the majority, even in Bible-teaching churches. Like I thought, wow, what what, what makes this so different? My heart broke as I began to pastor and witnessed what this desire for instant fix and microwave Christianity was doing instead of just faithful, dependent obedience upon the Word of God. Interesting enough, it was tripping up entire churches and it was crushing individual Christians in a horrible way, horrible way. And maybe some of you are suffering under the same problem. There are some who grew up thinking that it would be easy to follow Christ because coming to Christ seemed pretty easy. You know, I didn't have to earn it. It was all done for me. And so therefore, shouldn't the Christian life be the same? And there are others who 
you know, could continue to live by their feelings. And so when their feelings are down, they're crushed. They're wiped out in their faith instead of having this sense of stable relationship of faith and trust. There are some who are lazy, who really didn't fully count the cost of following Christ. But I think the most common response in churches that I have found are those who honor Christ and they attend most of the time and they give a little and they serve a little but their passion is not to live their life by the word of God in every element of their aspects of their lives in other words their selective obedience and what happens they usually have a crisis of faith they usually have some sort of issue or discouragement and the real issue is not their crisis the real issue is not their heartache or their difficulty, but the real issue, the underlying issue is they're not pursuing being a doer of the word. They're not pursuing being a doer of the word. Being a doer of the word, living by the word, applying the word of God is absent today in the American church. It is. It cripples churches, it crushes individual Christians, and today you may have a mild case of hearing only, or you may have a full-on stage four cancer of not applying the scripture on a regular basis. It could be either one, but understand, you and I need to face the fact that there's a massive difference between theology and action. There's a massive difference between hearing and doing, between theology and practice, or theory and practice, between believing and behaving as a Christian, between listening to the word and li living the word of God. And understand, many Christians have failed to make a practice of living by the Word of God in every aspect of their lives every single day. They have failed in that. They're not in the Word, the Word is not in them, and therefore the Word does not live through them. They may read the Bible occasionally, study the Bible, and they definitely listen to the Bible on Sunday, but it fails to make it from the head to the heart. And somehow, in the digestive system as a Christian, it gags up somewhere between the heart and the hands. It doesn't flesh itself out. It doesn't live itself out. It becomes just how much you're frustrated sometimes with your children, right? Because you say, honey, do this. And they say, yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. And then they what? Don't do it. They don't obey. And you're saying, yeah, it's not enough, honey, for you to say, yes, mommy, yes, daddy. You need to obey mommy and daddy. Anybody with me on this? Well, Christians are the same. We end up saying, yes, Lord. We hear the word. We read the word. Yes, Lord. And then we don't obey. And God is wanting the practice of his word to be a part of your mentality and your lifestyle, not just hearing the word. And again, Part of the danger of our culture is we have a culture that has this mentality that if you hear it, you've done it. And in the biblical mentality, in a Hebrew mentality, is when you're living it, you've got it. When it's expressed through your lifestyle, that's the element of maturity that we're striving for, and that's what James is about to talk about today. He's just told us about that real faith, and he's about to tell us that real faith produces genuine works, that real belief behaves, and he's already taught us that if we respond rightly to trials, we'll have joy, and if we actually obey the word of God towards temptation, we'll have some measure of victory over that, 
But he's going to tell us that all of that with trials and with temptation is dependent upon your willingness to do the Word of God, to live the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, to obey the Word of God. Enduring trials, resisting temptation is more than just having the right passages memorized. It's actually taking the steps that you need to take each time to apply the Word of God. You need to be a, write this down, a doer of the Word and not a dabbler. A doer of the Word and not a dabbler. Being a doer of the Word is someone who talks the Word, cleans with the Word, drives the Word, goes to work with the Word, schools, uh, friends, marriage, parents, spend, teach, patrol, manage, sell, compute, chill, hang out, watch, all according to the Word of God. Every element of your life is saying, how would God want me to live? And seeking to bring your life under obedience. That's the process of discipleship. You remember the Great Commission, do you not? Teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded you. Training that. That word teaching is actually a training. It's you're working at it. You're pushing towards it. You're making practices. Not just learning about it, but trying to put it into practice. The actual practice of the Word of God is what James is going to hit us with now. And he wants you to understand this in this passage that we're going to look at. We're going to introduce it this week, and we're going to look at it in depth in a couple of weeks. And James finishes chapter 1 by challenging you to test your faith. Test your faith by your response to the Word. How do you respond to God's Word in everyday life? In other words, be a doer and not a dabbler. What does he say? I want you to read this out loud with me from your outline so we can read it together. Verses 19, 20, and 21 to introduce this concept. Let's read it together. Here we go. Ready? This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This passage is about your response to the word of God in everyday life. Not a church, not a community group, not in ministry, but all of life by the word of God. All of life. Is the word of God your necessary food? You know, it, it's got to be what you live by, what you survive by. Is the Word of God what you think and do to survive? Is the Bible applied to every element of your life? Do you think about it in terms of every aspect, your driving, how you clean, every element at work, everything you say and do? When you hear and study the Word of God, are you seeking to practice it? To practice it. Christian culture often wrongly treats biblical knowledge like a boring math teacher you ever had a boring math teacher now they're good math teachers but they're sometimes boring math teachers and they're just get the facts down just learn the numbers get the formulas that's kind of what just learn it the biblical way of understanding biblical knowledge is to be the football coach to be the football coach the math teachers are now laughing understand you want to learn the pray, plays, and then you want to practice it again and again and again. And after that, what? Again. Again. Until they're lived out. They become second nature. You don't even have to think about it. You just do it. It comes out of your life by applying the truth. It bleeds when you're cut 
Okay, it, it's until God's word grows into a lifestyle habit. That's what he's looking for. And he's going to tell you three ways in this passage. Three ways, three points come right out of the passage. Number one in your outline, you already know the power of the word of God. You already know the power of the word of God. Now read James 1.19, the very first phrase. Take a look at what it says. He says, this you know my beloved brethren. Now, this is a very strong statement that says, you know this, you've known it in the past, and you continually know it now. You know this. This is something that is certain. Now, the text seems to indicate, and most commentators would agree with me, that James is looking back at verse 18 when he says, this you know. Because verse 18, look at verse 18. It says right in the center of it, the word of truth. You see that? Well, that's connected to, if you look at verse 21, implanted word those are connected conceptually and therefore James is turning his discussion to the word of God in verse 19 and when he says this you know what do the readers know well look at verse 18 look at it verse 18 in the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the what the word of truth that we would be the kind of first fruits among his creatures so James is saying you know this you know what I said in verse 18 God is not to blame for your temptation, but you're to blame God for your transformation. Okay, blame God for your regeneration. Blame him. You want to blame him, blame him that he saved you, right? That's what he's talking about here. And James tells you how God transformed you in verse 18. Salvation came to you through the word of truth. So he says in verse 19, you've known, you still know the power of the word to build on that knowledge you want to now respond to the Word of God on a regular basis. Verse 18, the Word of truth is powerful enough to save you. Now, verse 19, it's powerful enough to sanctify you. Getting the difference there? Verse 18, save you. Verse 19, sanctify you. And he's saying, I want this to be a part of your life. But it can only occur, hear me, it can only occur if you respond rightly to the Word of God. And that's verses 19 to 27. The end of the chapter is going to tell you, look, you've got to respond rightly to the Bible in order for this to really be true, that it's going to sanctify you. And that means you become a doer of the word, a doer of the word. Every born again Christian here already knows the power of the word of God. You already do. You say, how do I know that? Well, the word can transform those who are dark in sin to the light of salvation, right? The Word of God will convert someone from running from God to what? Running to God. It totally changes you. Uh, the Word of God will ge regenerate those dead in sins and make you alive in Christ. The, the Word of God will deliver those who are enslaved to sin and now make you the slave of Christ. And the Word of God will change your nature as opposed to Christ to now being submissive to Christ. That's the power of the Word of God. And you all know that. Can I hear an amen to that? You know that. God's all-powerful word, verse 18, grabbed you, his enemy. You were his enemy. I was his enemy. He grabbed you against your will and forced you and made you, verse 19, his beloved family. He made you family. He took enemies and made them into friends. Now, that's powerful. Would you agree? And because the readers know, verse 19, this you know it has incredible power of the word to bring about your salvation. Now you also need to know the importance that the word of God is also going to transform you. You came to Christ through the word of God, and now you're going to become like Christ through the word of God. 
You readers need to allow the Word of God to function in your life. And it's got to be more than just hearing. It's got to be more than just a sermon. It's got to be more than just a paragraph a day. It's got to be more than that. You want to take the Word of God and say, I want by the Spirit's power, by the exercise of my will, to put it into practice. That's the key. That's the key. It's not instant sanctification. It's not microwave. It's every day through the power of the Spirit exercising your will to put the Word of God into practice and say, Lord, how can I live your Word? James says, as family, he says, very first in verse 19, look at it, as those I deeply love, beloved family, I'm pleading with you, James says, to continue to allow the Word of God to do its powerful work in your lives. I'm asking you, number two in your outline, to take the right posture under the Word. To take the right posture under the Word. Verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren, so now have confidence that the Word will direct you and impact you in your new life in Christ. Look at verse 19 and 20. Okay, the rest of the verse. It says, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, James is not merely talking about general principles. You know, hey, listen better. Hey, don't get angry. He's not talking about that. Look at the Bible in its context, and you understand what he's saying here. He's saying, respond to the Word of God in this manner. He's talking about your response to the Word. Let's interpret the Bible correctly. And what he's saying is, I want you to have a right reaction to the Word. So you say, well, what's he saying here then? I'm so glad you asked. Let me explain it. James says, along with knowing that the Word of God is powerful enough to cause you to come to Christ, now it's powerful enough for you to become like Christ. You need to have confidence in the Word of God, not only for your endurance in the Christian life, but you need to have the same confidence for your endurance that you did in your entrance. You entered salvation, right, through Christ, and now your endurance with Christ is through the Word of God as well. But he says, verse 19, but everyone, but everyone must be, that's every one of you, junior hires, he's talking about you, just about in glory, he's talking about you too, all right? Every age, every sex, young and old, mature and immature, it is incumbent upon every believer to continue to take the right posture under the word in everything. When he says, verse 19, but everyone, that's a command in Greek, it's very clear. It's all the time, every one of you, this never gets old, James says. This never gets old. He's saying the effective functioning of God's word in your daily life demands, are you ready? Your active participation. It demands it. You need to apply the scripture, dependent obedience, acting upon your will, relying on the spirit. It's very simple to grasp. You're saying, Chris, this is just basic stuff. Yes, but it's agonizingly hard and requires work. That's where it gets weird. That's where it gets difficult. It's like, I understand. I need to be a doer of the word. Yes, I get it. But the practice of it is work. You got to die to self. You got to engage your will. You got to cry out to God saying, I can't do this. You got to do this through me. You have to be in part of that process. And that's what James is calling for. Very simple to understand, 
very, very agonizingly hard to pull off. So what is point number two? The right posture under the Word of God? He gives us a triple duty here. Do you see it there? Listen, speak, and don't become angry. Now what's he talking about there? Well, he also adds the adjective attitudes. Be quick and slow. Look at it again. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. First, in your outline, quick to listen. Quick to listen. Listen, when you're blessed, you've got passages in the Scripture that you know, give you thanksgiving. When you're troubled, you search for words of comfort. In times of confusion, you search for words of wisdom. When you're tempted, you seek the truth to actually help you to overcome that temptation. The Scripture, are you ready? Come on. That Bible in your lap there is your friend. It's your best friend. It is not only your path to overcoming and having joy in trial, as he's already written. It's not only the only way that you can overcome temptation, but it is the window for you to have intimacy and to grow in love with the Lord that you worship. It's the only way for you to have communion with Him. The only way, the Word of God. Therefore, He wants it when it's preached, when it's taught, when it's read, when it's taught in some manner, as you consider your attitude toward the Bible, as you ponder your use of the Scripture in everyday life, as you reflect on your response to the Bible, preach, taught, discuss. James asks, are you eager and are you attentive? to receive and assimilate accurate teaching when it's heard, when it's taught, when it's studied. I don't know about you, but I am amazed uh, uh, with young moms. We, we have about 200 young moms in our congregation, and they are amazing. And, and, and what is so amazing about them is they're so diligent with their children, and they love their children. They love being moms, which I love, and they love investing into the kids, but they have a supernatural power. Have you ever noticed it? A supernatural power. You could be cranking Huey Lewis power love, screaming through your house. You could be doing some loud music, some big giant worship thing that you're doing in your household. But if that baby just cracks a little peep, you know, beep, a little coo, coo, whatever. Moms are like, they got radar. They are in. They know. It can no matter what's going on, screaming and yelling at a football game. Oh, my baby. I mean, they're there. That's a great illustration of where we need to be when it comes to the truth of this book. We need to be tuned in and listening and grabbing on to, wanting to hear what Christ has to say to us through His Word. Your first duty with hearing is basically to increase your knowledge of the Word. But as you do, you must listen with a heart to apply, to do, to quick to listen, he's saying. That's what he's talking about here. Those who have received the letter of James, though, in the first century, they had a massive disadvantage that you don't have. They did not have the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that the letter to James is the very first New Testament epistle. That They did not have the Scripture. This is the very first one that they're getting. And therefore, they had to listen really carefully. Are you with me? Listen. Be quick to listen, the word. They were dependent upon Holy Spirit, God-appointed apostles, prophets, teachers 
to instruct them in the word from the Old Testament and now as God's revealing his word in the New Testament to respond to that, they had to listen intensely. In fact, James was written about the same time as Acts 13, 1. Look at that in your outline. It describes first century teachers. It says, now there were at Antioch in the church, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas was one and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius the Cyrene and Menaean who was brought up under Herod the Tetriarch and Saul himself. So they had no New Testament Bible in their laps like you do right now. And these early believers had to listen extra hard with a heart committed to the Scripture just as the Word transformed them in salvation. They knew that it needed to be there to transform them in sanctification. And they needed not just to hear it and understand it, but to live it, to apply it. So how do they do that? Well, they need to be ready, secondly, slow to speak. Slow to speak. Now, that does not mean that you're from the South. Because normally, no, they're very offensive about this, because in the South they'll say, listen, just because I talk slow don't mean I'm ignorant. You know what I mean? Okay, they talk slow just because they talk slow. That's not what he's talking about when he says slow to speak. He's talking about that you are ready. Are you ready? Don't be hasty in your reaction. Defining slow to speak means this is a call for restraint. He's telling you what is taught. You are to listen quickly, but don't respond too quickly. Listen, you all know this. God made it clear. You have two ears, and you have one what? Mouth. So you listen twice as hard as you speak. You want to make sure you're quick to hear and slow to speak. And this is a safeguard against a shallow, immature reaction. To, to, to be a continual talker is someone who's not listening. You've got to listen. You've got to be slow to speak, slow to react. You're not going to hear what God has to say. Now, one of the main reasons for this, again, we want to interpret the Bible in its context, correct? So we want to understand what they're hearing when he writes this. Please nod your head. That's our goal. That's our solo goal at FBC, is to tell you what the Bible means by what it said. So why does they say slow to speak? Well, in the early church, services were different. If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, you'll find out they were talking, they were asking questions. That's why I can't wait for evening services, because we can do a lot more of that, you know? They, they were interacting and dialoguing, even in the course of their worship services, and sometimes they were overreacting to what was taught. They were not being slow to speak. So what they would do is there would be a zealot who would overstate his opinion. Or there'd be a believer who would be asking a question but really bluntly. Or some shared openly and others reacted frankly. Listen, you've been a part of a study, I'm sure you have, where they're dialoguing through a text and someone brings up a question and they kind of wreck the flow of what's going on, right? And everybody's kind of distorted and it actually is such a harsh question that it actually destroys what you were trying to accomplish. Are you with me on this? You know this. That's what he's telling you. In the context of the worship services and the Bible studies, be slow to speak. Slow to speak. Don't rush into a conclusion right away. So James exhorts the believers, be slow. Remember this. Our freedom of expression is an incredible responsibility. It's not a right. In our society, it's a right. It's a responsibility how you react to stuff. Now, let me speak to a pet issue. Social media is devastating our ability to be slow to speak. 
It's, it's destroying it. And I'm speaking only in terms of Christianity here, social media for Christians. Expressing opinions is a major exercise of contemporary culture. Can I hear an amen to that? It is. Too many untrained wordsmiths, those with evil motives, few with axes to grind, those in love with their own ideas, some arrogantly trying to prove errant theology, some with no experience, and definitely those with no proven character are using social media to speak far too quickly about scripture, about sermons, about doctrines, about churches, and even specific people, and they feel that it's okay to do that. And you, you know it's true. You've seen people respond to things that are true wrongly, and you see what it leads to. What does it lead to? Anger. So he says, and James adds a third duty, be slow to anger. You react wrongly to a text. You ask that harsh question. You're, you, you aren't slow to speak, and you throw yourself in. You're going to create an angry environment. That's what was happening. Anger is a powerful emotion designed to destroy something. You want a definition of anger? It's a powerful emotion designed to destroy something. You want to destroy something, an idea, a person, whatever. Every emotion, though, that God gave is good in its place, and that's true of anger. But here, anger is used to do damage. Reckless and rash speech prone to wound. Would you agree? Quick comments are likely to provoke animosity. Uh, churches are divided and Christians are crushed under the wounds of angry words. Maybe you've seen that. Interesting enough, parents, you know when your kids and they start doing things to get old enough, they start doing things that you used to do when you were in high school and you, you get angry. Do you not? Why? Because you're going, I, I know what happened to me. I know the damage that did to me. I know that how messed me up. You're doing that and you get frustrated in that and you get angry. Well, James is warning about unchristian tempers flaring over disagreements. Disagreements on truth, on the word. So that's different than being angry when someone's rude or insensitive. This is slow to anger, trying to correct. You're trying to make things right. You're trying to get somebody back on course, but they're doing so wrongly with anger. You're not a limited atonement? I, I, you were one french fry short of a Happy Meal? What's wrong with you? And you begin to throw that out, and you counter what's being taught, and that furious reaction demeans the person of Christ, and it's a discredit to the cause of Christ. It doesn't mean we can't disagree. We just n not be disagreeable, not be edgy. Not be edgy. All furious reactions to the views of others malign Christ. And the Greek word anger there is, is more than just a, a passing surge of irritation. This anger here denotes a strong and persistent feeling of indignation. You're, you're burning over this. You're not a cessationist. What do you got, the IQ of a bug? Understand, anger is not always wrong. Are you with me? Mark chapter 3, verse 5 proves it. Jesus said, after looking around them with what? The perfect, sinless Son of God experienced anger. He did. So when is anger then justified, and when is it not justified? Well, Jay Adams has a great definition. He says, acceptable anger centers around things that offend God rather than oneself. 
Acceptable anger centers around things that offend God. There is a godly anger against sin, and if you are a Christian, you will hate sin. And there will be times in your life, definitely, where you will be angry at your own sin. And you'll be angry at society's sin. You will. Understand. That's not wrong. Anger, anger is wrong, though, when the reason for anger is your pride. Or your jealousy. Or your impatience. Or some self-focused manner. You know, what's interesting, Cain's anger over Abel's acceptable sacrifice was wrong anger. It was wrong anger. It was jealous. And when you're angry because you're overlooked or you're not mentioned or someone treats you poorly or you're ignored, that's often sinful anger. When your anger burns because your job is hard or your finances are stretched or relationships are strained, that's also sinful anger. Anytime anger is expressed by blowing up or clamming up, you ought to write that down. Anytime anger is expressed by blowing up or clamming up, that's illegitimate anger. Be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. And James adds, verse 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the what? <clears throat> the righteousness of God. Man's anger, especially over God's word, does not bring about, does not result in a righteous life. James is saying, listen, if you want to live a righteous life, anger is not going to get you there. Anger is not going to get you there. Uh, James says human wrath is in stark contrast to righteousness. So understand what he does here. <clears throat> in the original language, the word anger and the word righteousness don't have the article before it. And if it did, it would be a specific anger and a specific righteousness. So what he's saying is it's a general. So he says generally anger in its general form is not going to create generally a righteous life. If you're generally angry all the time, it is not going to produce generally a righteous life. It's not going to characterize. If anger characterizes your life, then it will not result in righteousness characterizing your life. A righteous life that God desires from you cannot be brought about through anger. And that word when he says there in verse 20, achieve, when he says that it does not achieve the righteousness of God, that achieve there means works or produces, brings about. So what he's saying there is your anger never produces the righteousness of God that God approves of. Unrighteous anger blocks the growth of righteousness in your life. So here's the principle. Are you ready? Write this down, please. Stop being edgy over your response to truth. Stop being edgy over your response and discussions of truth. Anger stifles your growth. Now, yes, you should develop convictions Yes, you should express anger over the deception that teaches people that they're going to heaven when they're actually going to hell. You should be angry. Yes, say hard things, but do so kindly. Yes, speak the truth, but do so in love. Yes, be full of truth, but also be full of grace. Full of grace. You don't need to beat anybody up over the truth. One more time. You don't need to beat anybody up over the truth. Anger stifles the growth of righteousness. Anger stifles your growth. So human anger does not appropriate the means for the production of righteousness. So take the right posture under the Word of God, and then, number three, take the right path with the Word of God. Take the right path 
with the word of God. He says in verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Uh, James sees your heart as a garden here. And left to itself, it's unmanaged, ignored, if you coast. The soil of your heart will produce only if it's a garden. What's it going to produce? Say it again, what? Weeds. So verse 21, he's telling us, listen, in the power of the Spirit, exercising your will, pull the weeds. Pull the weeds. So you prepare the soil for the Word of God. The verse begins with, therefore, it means for this reason. So basically he's saying, listen, don't, don't exercise anger, but for this reason, what you want to do is you want to pull the weeds. And what he's saying there when he says that you should, for this reason, do these things, he's basically telling you that the anger of verse 19 that you're venting right now is not actually going to help you grow in righteousness. It's actually just demonstrating that there's a difficulty and issues in your heart. Is not anger an expression of the heart? Yes. What comes out of your mouth is an expression of your heart, correct? And therefore, it's exposing your heart. And he's saying, look, you need to understand the anger of verses 19 and 20 is actually exposing and expressing the evils of your own heart. And what I want you to do is pull that stuff out. Pull those weeds out. What are you to do? Obey the word of God. And that means you flee sin and you pursue righteousness. Flee sin, pursue righteousness. You're to put on sin, put off sinful responses and pick up righteous responses. So first in your outline, you'll put aside. Put aside. Verse 21 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Putting aside means get rid of, meaning... Before the word, listen to me, before the word can be effectively welcomed in your life, these hindering sins need to be dealt with. There's a great need for you to pull the weeds that are choking out the fruitful seed in your heart. Some of you said to the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm I'm showing up on Sunday, I'm going to community group, I've got some Christian friends, I got a Christian mom, why is my life so messed up and so discouraged. Well, you've got to deal with sin in your life. You've got to be a doer of the word. He's saying, I want you to deal with these issues that are coming out of your heart. So what should I do? Well, you need to confess. That means to agree with God that that you're responsible and he's not. You need to repent, which means by an exercise of your will dependent upon the spirit, you're turning away from sin and pursuing something else. You're not only just not doing sin, you're pursuing righteousness and pursuing Christ-likeness as a motivation to your own life. And then you want to kind of plow up the soil with brothers and sisters who can help you and encourage you. And then you want to be planting new plants of character, new plants of habits, new plants of doing the Word of God in your garden so that your garden is full with those things that would be of Christ. That's the imagery. Time in the Word he's talking about. He's talking about time and discipleship, time and ministry, time and giving yourself away, time and prayer. Those habits are going to begin to deal with those sins as you begin to pull those out. What he says is when he says to put aside, that means get rid of. And he's actually given an imagery, not just of only of garden, but also the imagery of taking 
off dirty clothes and putting on clean. That's what he says in Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Colossians 3, 8 says the same thing. Now you also put them aside, anger and wrath and malice. So in verse 21, James is most likely also calling Christians to strip off abusive speech that's coming out and vulgar speech that comes from anger. And look at what he says in verse 21. Circle that word all. See the word all there? You know what it means, right? What does it mean? That's right, comprehensive. God's never satisfied with partial obedience, partial purity, partial righteousness, and partial sound speech. He wants you to deal with this. The filthiness there is actually the word dirt. You ever gotten dirty? Of course you have. Gotten dirt on your clothes, you take the dirty clothes off, you wash, and, and you put on new, fresh clothes. And that's what the imagery that he's giving here. Remove everything that's morally defiling. Listen, if you've got an ongoing issue in your life, go after it. Get friends around you. Start praying. Start memorizing the scripture, but go after it. Make choices every day to say, instead of doing this, I'm going to do that. Instead of doing this thing that's vile, I'm going to do the thing that's righteous. I'm going to replace that bad, sinful habit with something very positive, Christ-exalting, and word-centered. Are you getting it? It's very simple stuff here. But is, this is the stuff of life. This is the stuff that causes you to grow. You need to remove that, and if you're going to be a doer of the word, it's going to change your heart, which will change your talk and your walk. But it's the putting off and the putting on. Again, dependence upon the Spirit of God. Again, filthiness is also a word. Are you ready for this? It's a word that describes wax in your ears. Isn't that interesting? Filthiness is wax in your ears. And you know why, where the imagery here is? The imagery is really basic, right? You're not hearing the word. You got wax in your ears. So get the wax out of your ears so you can hear the word. Pretty basic stuff. That's the imagery he's telling us. And the grammar here all belongs to wickedness too. And John Calvin, the great reformer, viewed wickedness here as the innate evil that it's never wholly cleansed out of our flesh but will continue to sprout in our life like weeds for the rest of our lives, end quote. And here in verse 21, he's talking about making sure that wickedness, that evil speech, that, that response to the word that's not healthy, that that must be dependently attacked and willfully killed through the Spirit of God. Dependent repentance. Now, there aren't many of you here, but the danger in a church like ours where we believe in sound doctrine and we believe in the Scripture as the author's intended message, that it's the authority. There are times when young men especially can become men of truth, and we want you to be men of truth, men who are ready to fight for truth and stand on truth and uphold the truth. That's good. Become that man. Just don't be edgy. Just don't take your two-by-four of limited atonement and come over here and whack Kevin in the head because he doesn't believe it which he does, but just, you know, whack him. You don't want to do that. Understand, he wants you to be someone who will pick up, not just put off, but pick up the truth. That's secondly in your outline, 21 verse B, uh, the second half there, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He says, not just put it off, but now pick it up. And humility here is a strength of character which kills self and desires to serve Christ. You want to write that down. It kills self and wants to serve Christ. That's humility. 
Humility is, I don't want to be in the picture at all. It's not about me. I want it to be about Christ, and I want to serve Him sacrificially. And when James says to receive the word, it's actually a word that has a sense of urgency. I want you to hunger for this. Receive the word. Remember the Bereans? Everybody remember the Bereans? Acts chapter 17, verse 11. That word, receive the word, is the same word that's used to describe the Bereans. When it said, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they, what? Received the word. Same one in James, with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see what things were so. Listen, it is your necessary food. It is the flashlight that you use in pitch dark. It is the very essence of our whole experience is to live by the truth. Not just knowing it, but living it. Living it. And the phrase, the word implanted in you, it's only here in the New Testament. And though the word of God is not native to the human heart, the word of God loves to be planted in the heart that's born again. And it takes deep roots. And the word of God is a living seed, a seed by its nature, is to root itself deeply in the soil of the believer's heart and implanted at your salvation, at regeneration, the living word actively roots itself in your life, <clears throat> in the heart of a believer, as a vital part of your new nature. Now, maybe you don't understand this, but there was a new covenant that was promised to Israel, and we get to share in that as a church, as Christians today, and we share in that new covenant so that we make Israel jealous. We, Christians, should be so applying the word and Christ so shining in our lives and our community so filled with his presence that Israel, a Jew, an unconverted Jew, should look at us and go, I want what you have. I want that, whatever that is. I experienced that several times, and I think I've shared this with you. I, I put young Christian couples who loved the Lord and loved each other, and I stuck them on secular campuses. I actually literally stuck them at UCLA, USC, and CSUN. And you say, Chris, were you being brilliant? No, I was being desperate. I couldn't find any right-on-fire singles, so I had to stoop so low as to get some dumb old couples who loved the Lord, who loved each other. And you know what God did? God took those couples who basically just loved each other, loved the Lord. It wasn't perfect love. They had little disagreements. They had fights, but they loved each other. And the kids from UCLA and USC and CSU and that come from all over the world and had came from horrible homes. And they would look at that couple and they would say, whatever they have, I want it. Whatever it was. And then they learned it was Christ and they responded to the gospel. That's the way it's supposed to be. The new covenant is supposed to be that way. And we don't get the new covenant in all its glory because we're not in the land of Israel. But we get a part of the new covenant and part of the new covenant. Are you ready for this, Christian? The word of God is written in your heart. Jeremiah 3331. The word of God is in you. He says it here. It's implanted in you. So get rid of the weeds that choke its power. Embrace the powerful word implanted in you and produce Christ-like fruit. And the power of God's word is able to save your soul. Come on, say it with me. Able to save your what? Now, i got to explain something. 
You say, yeah, it, it saved me. The Word of God saved me. You said that at the beginning of the sermon, Chris. It saved me. This is way bigger than that. When he says, is able to save your soul, you need to understand something. I'll give you a little theology here. Okay, we are dichotomists. That means you have a material body. Go ahead, feel it. Material body. And inside that material body is the immaterial part of you. When you go out on the road here and you get hit by a truck and you're laying there and, and it's, you're dead, your immaterial part of you has left. It's left. You're separated. That's death, separation. You're put back together. In the scripture, soul and spirit are sometimes used synonymously, sometimes, but the most often understanding of the word soul is body and spirit makes a living soul. When he calls you soul, when he's talking about this here, he's not only talking about the word of God saving you, he's saying the word of God is com com completely complete your salvation. He's talking about when one day you're going to have a glorified body and your immaterial part is going to be linked to that glorified body and you are going to be a glorified person for all eternity, a living soul. And it's the word of God that not just saves you, the Word of God not just sanctifies you, but the Word of God brings you home, Christian. It brings you home to be a living soul for all eternity, perfect in God's presence. Are you ready for that? That's the power of the Word of God, and that's why he's about to tell you, listen, Christian, he's about to tell you, he's going to hammer me, and he's probably going to hammer you too. But he's going to say, you have got to be a doer of this Word and not just to hear. It's got to be put into practice. Get those sins out of the way and begin to practice the word. Every day, every time you hear the word, every time you come on a Sunday, practice the word. Make efforts to say, this is how I'm going to practice it. You say, can I do it in my own strength? No, you can't. So you need to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. But you need to engage your will and say, I'm going to put this into practice. Listen, I got to tell you, I've been reading ahead in James just a little bit, and I want to warn you, he ain't letting this go. He's a bulldog. He's going to grab a hold of your soul, and he's going to shake you until you go, okay, 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 I'll do it. Okay? He wants you to live the word. Faith without works is dead. So let's apply this. Are you being impacted by the word currently? Currently, the Word of God not only doing its work in your heart, but unless you receive it in the right way, it has to be received the way that Jesus said, not just take care of what you listen to, Mark 4, not just take care how you listen, Luke 8, but too many Christians are in the tragic condition that Jesus warned about in Matthew 13, where they're hearing but not what? Doing. They're not understanding. They attend church. They listen to the Word of God, but they never seem to grow. And James says the fault, most often, is the listener. The listener, because of two reasons, write them down, decay or deadness. When you're not applying the Word of God, you're decaying as a Christian, or you're not a Christian, you're dead. And therefore, he's saying this is desperate to your spiritual life. Hearing is not the same as obedience. Write that down. Hearing is not the same as obedience. There is no vicarious obedience. 
don't assume because you hear accurate teaching from someone submitted to God's word that you yourselves are also living in obedience to it. Hearing must lead to what? Applying. It must. So make the difficult effort to live the word of God by the power of the spirit by applying what you hear. And again, Christian, we can't live the Christian life. It's got to be Christ through us. That's through his spirit. But you do engage your will. You are involved in the sanctification process where you're relying, you're engaging, you're making choices, you're, you're directing, you're saying, I'm going to do this instead of that. You're making decisions. And you say, Chris, it's easy, isn't it? No! It's terribly difficult. It's hard. It's soul-wrenching. Come on, please say amen to that. It's difficult, but it is the very stuff of the Christian life. I am not happy, and our elders are not happy, if you're just saved. We want you to be the most mature and godly congregation on planet Earth, so we're ready for whatever's going to hit us. We want you strong and stable, and that process will only happen when you start doing the Word. You've got to live it and practice it. Letter B. What do you see as your heart is exposed by what you say? Listen, I, I, I don't hear what you say all the time, but your wife does, your husband does, your kids do, your parents do. They watch you. What do they hear that comes out of your mouth? What do they do? How are they hearing it? Listen, your heart is indicated by how you give. Your heart is how, indicated by how you respond to trials, you know, with joy or not. Your heart is indicated by how you respond with temptation. Now, he's saying your heart is exposed by how you respond to the truth. Are you going to just hear it or are you going to live it? He said it's going to show your heart. And let her see, does your hunger for the word give evidence that you're a true Christian? Does it give evidence? One of the most reliable evidences of genuine salvation is your hunger for the word. <clears throat> Real Christians are indwelt, get this, with the spirit of truth that means you will love the truth. If he's in you and he's the spirit of truth, he's going to go, truth, ooh, I love that. And you're going to go, I love that. And you're going to have one heart, one mind with the spirit of God. Listen, genuine believers have an appetite for God's word. You will not always be hungry. You'll not always be starving. But if you're born again, you'll want God's food. John MacArthur says this, this great quote. Just as a newborn baby does not have to be taught to hunger for its mother's milk, a newborn child of God does not have to be taught to hunger for what? God's Word. Are you a child of God? Because if you found yourself and you're looking down the course of your life and there's been no application of Scripture, there's been no evidence of Christ living through you, then it may indicate that you need to cry out and get, give me a new heart. And that new heart will love the truth and that new heart will want to obey the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for this very patient congregation. And Father, we pray, Father, that you would use this word to change our lives, that you would direct us to be more of the men and women you want us to be. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net.
And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.